0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/slash Institute. I think we're going to get started. I'd like to, um, to thank the Institute. And Professor Catherine Corey of the theater program who played a major role in making this all happening this evening. And of course, I'd especially like to extend my thanks to Professor um, Nasheed Khalidi and Ismail Khalidi for having made the trip all the way to Abu Dhabi. Uh, My name is Justin Stearns. I run the Arab Crossroads Studies program here at NYU Abu Dhabi. And I'm going to do my best to efface myself and disappear for the rest of the evening. So what I'd like to do this evening is first give a brief introduction to both of the the speakers and then start off with a series of questions between both of them and then leave ample time at the end for Q&A from all of you. And the main subject of the conversation is, is, is going to be on narrating Palestine, a look at how both of um, our speakers here have taken up the issue of Palestine and their academic and theatrical work, where they see these two discourses overlapping, that is to say between the arts and the academy, and where they see them diverging. And finally, I'd like to, them to address what it means today in all senses of the term to represent and discuss Palestine in the Arab world and in the United States, NYU Abu Dhabi being such an interesting Place and that it overlaps and brings together both of these. So, but to introduce them, although they are, I think, well known to many of you, Professor Rashid Khalidi is Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies in the Department of History at Columbia University. He has written prolifically on the history of Palestine and from 1991 to 93 was an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations. He has written seven books that I know of and possibly more. Four of these have won various awards and he's edited another two and he's widely regarded in the United States and abroad as one of the foremost historians on Palestine and American foreign policy in the Middle East. Ismail Khalidi is a playwright, poet, director, and actor who has an MFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and has written five plays, one of which, *Tennis and Nablus, has received multiple awards, and another of which, *Foot*, was presented in a staged reading here at NYU Abu Dhabi last fall as part of Catherine Corey's curated festival, Arab Voices and it will be performed in Arabic in Palestinian resident camps next year on the 70th anniversary of the Nakba. He currently lives and works in Valparaiso, Chile. So to get things started this evening, I'd like to begin by asking both of you to say a few words about the other's work, that is to comment on each other rather than on your your own work, and how you see the other as having taken up the task of narrating Palestinian history in the 20th and 21st centuries. Ismail, maybe you could start?
1: <clears throat> um, first, am I live? Yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you to the institute and to all of you. Um, and it's an honor to be on the stage, of course, with my father. And um, <clears throat> I think to answer your question, um, you know, as as his son, I have you know a, immense respect, and I'm kind of in awe of of the work uh, that my father's done. Uh, speaking as objectively as possible as a Palestinian American, I'm also immensely uh, proud of and thankful for the work he's done. Um, you know, when we talk about narrating Palestine, I think that it's important, to, at least for for me, to talk about it in the context of what Palestine means in the United States. And in the United States, Palestine is still, and has been for many decades, a taboo subject in many ways. And now that that's changing in different ways. but Essentially, it's still the case that Palestine is an identity, an entity, a history which has been on many levels and in many ways erased, forgotten, uh, misconstrued, um, disembodied, uh, deconstructed, and um, disarticulated. And so I think what my father's work has done in many ways is rearticulated articulated it um, by... Uh, Looking very closely at these important historical moments in Palestine and the Arab world, and as they relate to the united States um, uh, and kind of helped you know one of the few people who have done really significant work in kind of reassembling what has been disassembled over the years through you know physically in terms of the erasure of Palestine, but also um, you know politically intellectually in terms of of memory um, and so you know, I think one thing I I also admire about my father's work is is that um, while he's very proud personally to be a Palestinian and it plays a huge role in his and his in his life and 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 also his ability to understand Palestine, he's I think so um, adept at removing the kind of personal element when necessary and focusing with you know. Precision and moral clarity as a historian on uh, on the topic, and I think that um, the last thing I'll say is that in terms of narrating Palestine and giving ourselves permission to narrate Palestine, which, as the late Edward Said said, you know, Palestinians are um, regularly denied this permission to narrate. Our our history is narrated for us without our consent. Um, I think that. Rashid's work has, um, he's taken the permission to narrate Palestinian history himself. But I think he's also given us, those of us who want to narrate the history of Palestine in our own ways uh, and understand the history of Palestine, he's given us this vast array of tools to do that properly, to understand the topic, to delve in, and to further conversation and action. Well, thank you.
0: No further ado, wouldn't you like to comment on, on how Ismail as his, his work has spoken to the issue of, of narrating Palestine?
2: Yeah. Um, let me begin by thanking everybody for coming, thanking NYU Abu Dhabi, thanking you, Justin, thanking Catherine, uh, and all the other people who made Nahid and all the other people who made this possible. Um, it's wonderful to be back in an Arab country. It's wonderful to be at our sister university, NYU. Uh, I was down at NYU downtown. New York, NYU, at a conference at a, 10 days ago. So NYU, NYU. Um, let me begin by saying uh, I, uh, I I love my son's work. I think that it's um, really, really inventive, wonderful theater. I'm not a theater critic, but I, uh, I, I've seen readings or productions of several of his plays. And that's not the reason that I think they're important just because I think they're good plays. The reason I think they're important is because the the one of the many tools that was used to deny us, the Palestinians, permission to narrate uh, was a set of artistic and cultural tools. In other words, people became convinced of what is largely a false narrative, not just or in fact mainly because people were writing pamphlets or books or histories, but because people were writing plays and poems and making films and novels, which portrayed the Zionist enterprise in an entirely positive light. That's the power of art and culture and literature. And if we are going to completely you know, do a judo move and, 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 and use, you know, our lesser strength to, to turn things around. It's not just going to be the work of people like me. I mean, I, I, I train historians. I'm a historian. My students, I hope, will one day all be working in different fields of Middle East history and will further the process that people before me and my generation have started of, you know, re-narrating Palestinian history from a Palestinian perspective. But if we're going to change the narrative around, uh, in the world as a whole, but especially in the West, it's going to require ways that can reach people who are never going to read a history book, who are never going to come and take my classes or the classes of my students when they go out and teach. There are going to be people who will read comic books or read novels or see plays or see movies or see other cultural and artistic productions. Um, and I think that's the power of, of his work. Um, his, his play, uh, Tennis and Nebus, is a perfect example. Uh, in, in a book that's on sale out, outside, um, The Iron Cage, I talk about this crucial episode in Palestinian history, which was where I would argue our national movement really suffered a, cru- a crucial defeat, and that was the 1936 1939 Revolt. He takes that episode, and he's not actually building on my work. He takes incidents from an Israeli historian's book, Tom Segev, and he turns them into a play, this play, Tennis and Nebdis, which shows the cruelty of the British, which shows the heroic effort of the Palestinians, which shows the ambiguity of relations between Arabs and Jews in the 30s, which shows uh, finally, and most importantly, that all of these things are bound together and that this was a crucial moment in Palestinian history. But it does it in a way that you know, no numbers of, of, of books on history could do. You, know, you, you see the British as the pompous colonial fools that they were. At the same time, you see their brutal cruelty. And you see the Palestinians, in some cases, gone no, out. there we go. You see the Palestinians, in some cases, doing things that are foolish and wrong and you see other palestinians who are heroic and so on and so you, you get a real feeling for the people who actually made the history in a way that no history book even the best can't uh, can't, can't do
0: yeah i'm actually kind of i'm glad that you kind of brought up other forms of I being mean, using Joe Sacco's footnotes in Gaza next week in one of my classes to teach, and so these, these are different types of media which reach other audiences, and, and, and they do so very powerfully. In, in the following, I'd like to ask each of you a couple of questions about your work. But um, While the questions will be directed to one of you, if the other feels uh, interested to comment afterwards, please feel free to do so. And I'll, Rashid, I'll start with you and your book, uh, Palestinian Identity, which was my introduction to your, to your work. It's now 20 years old. Um, in that, you elucidated with great nuance the ways in which the diverse components of Palestinian social and political identity changed from the late 19th into the mid-20th century. And could you talk a little bit about the importance of that project, of why you undertook it, and also of how it continues, at least as as I see it, to be important to do that today?
2: Yeah, uh, I had um, several objectives in mind uh, when I wrote this book. It started off as something else, but as I wrote it, this is what it developed into. Um, One objective was to try and lay to rest a common misconception um, about Palestinian history, which is a misconception that many national movements have about themselves, which is that we as a people existed exactly as we are today since time immemorial. This is not true. It's not true of the Palestinians. It's certainly not true of the Israelis. In fact, it's not true of most people. The great-great-grandfathers of most most people who consider themselves French today did not think of themselves as French. They were from Dauphiné. They were from Bourgogne. They were from here. They were from there. Their national identity was molded in the 19th century. Uh, Palestinians a little bit later, but not much later. So that's one thing I was trying to do. I was trying to show that national, national identities are contingent. They're based on pre-existing realities, but that's one thing I was trying to do. Another thing I was trying to do was to um, deal with another related misconception, which is that the ancient history of Palestine it provides a basis for the Zionist project, for Zionism. When what I was arguing, I wasn't really arguing against Zionism. What I was arguing is that what is true of the Palestinians is also true of the Israelis. Uh, it's true in different ways. It's an it's a, it's a entirely modern project, whereas people brought together in Palestine uh, in a colonial settler movement. But it is, it's a typical national project at the same time that it's a colonial settler project. Um, and finally, I was trying to show the rootedness of the Palestinians. And I did this through work. I was living in Jerusalem much of the time that I wrote this book. And I was working in various family libraries in Jerusalem and looking at family papers. And it's very clear if you look at those things, that you know the Boudaidi family or the Husseini family, various other families, including, including my own, that this is a very deeply rooted people. Not, not to take the national myth as real, but to deny that is a big, big mistake. And you see some of these roots are religious. Some of these roots are uh, a loyalty to city. Some of them are loyalty to family or village or tribe, whatever it may be. Um, and so the book tried to, at the same time as it was demolishing some nationalist myths, explain something about Palestinian identity, what, what some of the roots of Palestinian identity are. And... Um, you know I mean the book the book is still in print. it came out in another edition uh, it's finally out in Arabic um, it's been published in other languages and I'd like to think that it's had exactly the effect that I, I I want it to have. People no longer in class who've read this book say the kind of things that people said twenty five and thirty years ago even 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 educated people
1: right. Can I add one really quick thing is i I think another element is that, that you know, in terms of the accomplishments of Palestinian identity, was uh, the myth that when Palestinians exist in the discourse, in the imagination of Americans or Westerners, um, we only exist in opposition to the state of Israel. And so that, if we exist, we therefore only really started existing in 1948 afterwards, or 1967 afterwards, depending on the kind of twisted version of, of history that's being, um, you know, put forth. Uh, and I think that w- the other kind of accomplishment of Palestinian identity is to say, no, there is this deeply rooted, complicated <clears throat> history that's both similar to other national movements and national identities and very unique that existed long before 1948. And so that was, I think, a really effective kind of blow in undermining that that destructive narrative about the partial existence or the kind of non-existence or the temporal birth of, of Palestinians in, in the public imagination in the West.
0: Well, that that actually segway or helps me segue to my next question, which is for you. And and with this play that we've now mentioned, I think twice at least, uh, Tennis and Nublos. And in, in, in this play, you're focusing on, and as as uh, she pointed out, on the sort of the end of the the failed Arab Revolt of 1936 to 39. And this is um, and one of the key themes to this play, um, which is. As we were talking about earlier, actually really, really funny, by the way, uh, lies in the uneasy friendship between one of the main Palestinian protagonists and his Jewish friend. And I was wondering about if you could talk a little bit about that friendship, about what its role is in the play, and maybe perhaps compare it to a very different kind of complexity that is in another one of your praise, plays in, uh, in Subra Falling, in which there is this rather surreal scenario of an Israeli pilot crashing into a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon and being mistaken for a Palestinian family's son who was killed fighting the Israelis. And in both cases, you're bringing representatives of what are sometimes depicted as these two camps into very intimate um, relationships.
1: Um, Yeah, and just really briefly about Tennis and Nablus, I think I was very much trying to do something similar to, to Palestinian identity in a very different way, but... Of, of subverting that narrative of, the, of Palestinians only existing um, in relation to and in opposition to Israel and therefore only after 48. And to say that actually put it, the Palestinian national movement and Palestinian identity within the context of a much longer history dating back to the beginning of the 20th century, but uh, also firmly rooted as an anti-colonial struggle, right? In the United States, we celebrate uh, in and in Hollywood, you know, Indian independence, right? Gandhi, um, uh, Nehru, right? The Indian struggle against British colonialism. We celebrate the Irish struggle against British colonialism, uh, but somehow Palestinians are not put in that same category. Um, and I th- and I think and I thought uh, that it, it it's very important to kind of uh, to kind of intervene in that in that narrative and and. Put the Palestinian story, uh, you know, within that kind of pantheon of anti-colonial movements, and also um, uh, that that predates, you know, the conflict with with Zionism. Um, to answer your question, um, you know, personally, I'm not big on the on the story of the kind of the the trope of the the unlikely Jewish Palestinian friendship or romance. You know, I, I find it often. I mean, occasionally, it's really it can be really interesting, but I think generally it's predictable and and kind of trite and 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 also, I think it serves kind of nefarious purpose of 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 kind of equating the two sides, right I, I don't equate the two sides. I don't think this is a conflict between two equal sides. I consider it to be a colonial settler project and an occupation between a very very powerful country which is the only sovereign power between the river and the sea and and a dispersed uh displaced occupied people and that is a very that's that's a very uneven power dynamic so i think that that the kind of typical you know oh the unlikely jewish palestinian friendship can kind of serve those those purposes in that false narrative so in the play and annabulus which probably not that many of you have Seen or read, but it is available outside in an, an anthology which I <laughs> edited uh, with Naomi Wallace, who's uh, an amazing American playwright. Uh, there is a there is a, f- a friendship between uh, a Jewish refugee, uh, a Jewish uh, member of the Jewish diaspora, who's a German Jew who's living in Palestine uh, in the 30s, and Tarek qudsi who's one of the Palestinian characters. Um, but it's not the central, I mean, it's not the core of the play. So I didn't want to make it that, their friendship, the core of the play. But it does It does uh, play an important role. Um, I think, I'll try to be as brief as possible, but I, I think that the character of Hirsch, for me, served many purposes. I think, first of all, he's a, a representative of... Um, of cultural Zionism more than political Zionism. And I think one of the narratives is that, in the US at least, is that if you're Jewish, you're therefore a Zionist. And if you're a Zionist, you're therefore believe in the political project of Zionism from start to finish, and and therefore do not believe in the rights of the Palestinian people. Um, whereas actually, historically, there's been a, a a, a very contentious discussion and 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 struggle within the larger Jewish diaspora, and even in Israel and the United States. Um, it's taken various forms, but about the nature of Zionism and about the nature of Judaism as it relates to the Zionist project. And so Hirsch, for me, is 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 a character that complicates that kind of narrative of, you know, Zionist equals this and 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 saying that actually, there was at that point some nuance and for me he's a representative of that cultural zionism and which is to say that there's a belief in in the you know the rights of the jewish people to kind of be spiritually and culturally connected with palestine or, or its israel but it doesn't necessarily mean it's an endorsement of the national project of displacing palestinians right mm-hmm. and so for me he kind of adds he's a character that in that sense adds that nuance and adds that um, you know, he has that nuance to him. to, um, And then their friendship also, for me, represents a very real part of the Palestinian story at the time, which is that although ultimately um, the Zionist project succeeded in taking over Palestine through force and displacement and violence and terror in 1947 and 48 and thereafter, there was decades in which... Uh, Jewish settlers were obtaining land obtaining land through legal means through buying land but sometimes with the help of the British but there were many instances in which Palestinians for a variety of reasons were selling uh, land to uh, to Jewish settlers and in, in the play Tadek is selling family land uh, to Samuel Hirsch who's also his friend and he's doing that for his own reasons of Wanting to be modern and Western and a successful businessman, and trusting this man and having compassion for Jews, and I think in, historically it happened for many reasons. It happened because of indifference. It happened because of pure greed. Palestinians selling land. It happens because there was there was absentee landlords living in Beirut who were selling their land. It happened purely out of naivete, out of a, a, a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding or a lack of clarity about the actual nature of the Zionist project. Um, but it did happen. And so for me, their friendship kind of helps elucidate and kind of bring to life some of those elements of the Palestinian uh, relationship to, to uh, Jewish settlers and the Zionist project at that moment and also the Zionist, you know, Zionists and, and Jewish immigrants in, in Palestine's relation to the Zionist project itself. Um, so yes, that's kind of my short answer. Um, and, you know, Sabra falling, I think, long yeah, yeah, I think Sabra falling is a, is a, is a different conversation. Sure,
2: absolutely. Um, do you want to add anything to that or? Uh, um, I, I wish he'd talked a little bit about Sabra falling because he wasn't born when Sabra fell and we were living in Beirut and, um, my wife, Muna was pregnant with him. And so he was very much affected by the 1982 war in his mother's womb. <laughs> And we, she, she had to flee the bombing at one stage, running, five months pregnant, with him, um, in June 1982. Um, so he was born in November of that year. Um, and uh, you know, it's a testament to the fact that you can, not having lived through something, you can write a play like that play, which most of you don't have the opportunity to see perhaps now, but uh, hopefully will one day. Which I think renders quite you know, interestingly, some of the issues and dilemmas of the PLO in Beirut, the siege, and so on, of, of 1982. An episode which, you know, when I talk to young Palestinian audiences, a lot of them don't know much about. Okay, okay.
0: perhaps then to, to pivot back to some of your, your own work, I'm thinking here specifically of, of, of brokers of deceit and, and sewing so crisis. You take up the, uh, the U.S. role. In, uh, in frustrating uh, Palestinian nationalist aspirations, and it's it's uh, perhaps only appropriate uh, here in a, at a U.S. institution to reflect upon this. And so I was. This has gone on throughout a multi-decade-long process It's sometimes referred to as the peace process. And uh, if could you briefly reiterate um, why why this has been the case? That is to say, what what is what have been the major motivating factors for the United States to, to support Israel in the way it, it has and to, and to basically render a, a sovereign Palestinian state, uh, well, what seems now sadly a near impossibility.
2: You know, in, in that book, Brokers of Deceit, I make a very harsh judgment, which is that the United States does not do what Israel wants where American vital interests are concerned. And I cite case after case after case, where American Cold War imperatives or American economic imperatives or other American imperatives led American statesmen to bully and coerce Israel into doing what was necessary for the United States to achieve its objectives. If anybody's interested in question and answer, I can go through some of these cases where the United States perceives that its vital interests are concerned, that. Zionist lobby, the power of Israel in the American scene, Israel's influence on the media, all of this stuff just doesn't count. Presidents will do whatever is necessary where they see that it's important for the United States to achieve an objective and if the Israelis don't like it, they're brushed out out of the way. And that's happened again and again and again on issues that they consider important. Palestine is not one of those issues. On the Palestine issue, there is no cost whatsoever to the United States for taking a completely pro-Israel position. Why is that? Look around you at the Arab world. Why is that? Because the Palestinians don't have the kind of allies that Israel has. They've had allies at different times in the past. Most people in most Arab countries have supported them. But I think if we go back to 1948, and we look at the governments that were in power, or we go back to later periods of of history, we will find that there was almost no cost for the United States doing various things on the Palestine issue that were harmful to the Palestinians and that were helpful to the Israelis. So I'm not trying to say that 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 the Israel lobby is not important. I'm not trying to say that the links that have been built up between the United States and Israel are not important. I'm simply saying that On this issue, the Palestine issue, we're talking about something that is not seen as a vital interest, and that's largely because the United States can have outstandingly good relations with the Arab countries, most of them, and with the Islamic world, most of it, and pay absolutely no price for its policy on Palestine, absolutely no price. So this is a Palestinian problem, but I would argue it's also an Arab problem. It's an american problem too because this is harmful in my view to the american the national the interest community. pardon me they
1: don't
2: pay a price for the internet for the rest of the international community yeah that's true to clarify i, I haven't given you the whole argument of brokers and no no no, no i get that.
0: that i'm just wondering is there a, is there in looking at it this way is there a single american imperative for why they've behaved the way they have towards the Palestinians? or is it just that the Palestinians it doesn't matter they're willing to there's no reason for them to ever support such a project, and therefore they've never gotten behind it. I'm just wondering if there's an ongoing theme that runs through the last 50 years of American diplomacy towards Israel and Palestine, or if it's a matter of each individual president and foreign policy establishment just making up their minds on a decade-by-decade basis towards what suits their short-term
2: interests the best. I mean, it goes back to Truman, who said to a bunch of American diplomats, who had been brought together in Washington in 1945 to tell him that um, there would be negative consequences for the United States in supporting the Zionist project. And Truman was new, new in office at that point. It was early in 1945. He'd been in office six or eight months since President Roosevelt died. And he said, I'm sorry, gentlemen. I have many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people. There we go. For whom?" Israel is important, or the Zionism is important. I don't have a lot of Arabs among my constituents. Now, that was true in 1945. Um, and there was no other factor weighing on Truman. And I would argue that that has been a continuing concern. I mean, there were differences. Eisenhower treated the issue differently than did Truman. You could go back and forth through the different administrations. And I do a little bit in that book, Brokers of Deceit. But I think that's a... that, that is a crucial factor. Now today, there are several million Muslims and Arab Americans in the United States, but they are a completely different group demographically and in terms of their level of assimilation, their level of involvement in American politics, than either one of the two components of support for Israel, which is the American Jewish community or the American evangelical Christian community. Those are deeply rooted American constituencies. Arab immigration to the United States, most of it came after the immigration laws were changed in 1965. The overwhelming majority of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans are first generation or their children. The overwhelming bulk of Jewish immigration came before 1924, five generations. So it's a deeply rooted, totally assimilated American-American community, which is much, much, much more uh, established in American life. I mean, I am seeing at, at Columbia, and I see when I lecture around the United States, second-generation kids who are as American as anybody. But they're second-generation. They don't yet have the established position in society that people who are fifth- and sixth-generation Americans, they don't remember the shtetl, they don't remember Minsk or Pinsk or wherever it, ever it was their great-great-grandparents came from. Whereas the kids I teach, the young people I teach their parents grew up in Jordan or their parents grew up in Palestine or Egypt or wherever it may be. So so we're a little ways away from having the, the millions of people who have the weight within the American electoral system and the, and the financial wherewithal within the American uh, electoral system of these two major constituencies, evangelical Christians who are very important in the Republican Party and, and the American Jewish community that's important in the Democratic Party.
1: I, I would just add in that I think that another factor is that the Israel lobby, you know, where they dig in their heels most and exert the most, and where they kind of draw the line is on Palestine, because it conflicts so profoundly and inherently with the Zionist project, whereas policy on Egypt or Iran or Saudi Arabia or whatever, I mean, the the, the Israel lobby will have um, you know, will have their opinions and try try to influence policy, but I think that there's a they dig their heels in, in a different way when it comes to Palestine because it conflicts so profoundly uh, with the Zionist project. So. Let me, on um, again, sticking with the United States, come
0: to one of your, uh, what I consider to be perhaps your most ambitious play, which is Dead or My People. And in and, and, and this play, you're stepping away from Palestine, per se, and you, you turn to the story of, of Nikola, who's a Lebanese immigrant in the southern United States in 1918. He becomes friends with a local African-American who's involved in resisting the, the local powerful branch of the KKK. And this play really deals with the meanings of, of whiteness and of the US's tormented history of, of race, with, with immigration, with the importance of language and the loss of heritage. And I'm wondering what prompted you to turn away from Palestine, which is really a subject that ties together much of the rest of your dramatic work and, and to look at the position of Arabs within the United States and to
1: choose particularly this, this historical moment. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, I mean, I think, first of all, I'm American in in, in so many ways and, and much of the work I do, even on Palestine is influenced by the fact that I was raised in the United States and I'm culturally very American. And, um, and, you know, I fully acknowledge that I, you know, I have a very specific privileged point of view in that respect. Um, but I also care deeply about inequality and have witnessed inequality and in the power dynamics of of racism, specifically in the United States, um, for my whole life. And, and also find that it's not unconnected to the issue of Palestine and vice versa. So, I mean, I think that... Um, it's incredibly important in that respect. Uh, also, one of my grandmothers immigrated from Lebanon in the uh, 1920 to the United States. Um, so I kind of I do have also a family connection in that respect. Um, also, you know, the question of whiteness is very is very intriguing to me because, as even though I am politically marginalized in the United States. Uh, because I'm Palestinian, because of my name, because of my birthplace, because of my presumed religion, uh, and have dealt with that my whole life, I also, uh, you know, pass, because I'm very light-skinned, I pass, I can pass as white. So the idea of whiteness has always been very interesting to me, because in some ways and in some context, I am perceived of as white, and and am white, Uh, but I've never felt politically culturally, um, uh, that that was something that I could kind of buy into, or I wanted to kind of cash in, right? Um, so the other element is that I was uh, reading the work of, of a historian, I think, that trained with my father, uh, Sarah Galtieri, um, who's now at uh, USC, uh, in Southern, University of Southern California. And she wrote an amazing book called Between Arab and White. Um, which was based on research of hers, which documented the instance, instances of, of Arab Americans, Syrians they were called at that time. So mostly from Mount Lebanon, who were actually lynched in the United States, in the South. So during Jim Crow, at a period when thousands of black men and women were being extrajudicially murdered and tortured by vigil, by law enforcement and vigilante groups like the, the KKK. Um, there were instances of others who were not neither black nor white, um, including Jews, including Italians, but including Arabs as well. Um, And the irony of that, for me, what I found very fascinating, is that it was happening at the exact same time that Arab-Americans were legally achieving whiteness. So they were achieving citizenship, which in the 1920s was based on whiteness. You could only be American if you were white. And so these uh, Arabs from Lebanon and Syria and Palestine were going to great lengths in the courts to prove that they were in fact white, using a whole array of arguments. Of course, whiteness is not a real thing. It's invented. So as you can imagine, the arguments were crazy. But but it was happening. And so I found it fascinating that you had at the same moment Arabs being lynched by mobs for not really being... Right, you know, or white, um, uh, and at the same time, kind of achieving whiteness. To me, that's especially kind of fascinating, viewed from the perspective of 2016, 2017, in that post 9-11, especially, Arabs and Muslims have entered into a very distinct category that is not white in the United States, um, and that ranges from terrorist to, you know, uh, slovenly immigrant to kind of Guantanamo torture, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and also you have this explosion with new media of the kind of publi- the, the public documentation of essentially what are modern day lynchings of black men and women. In the United States, right? Police brutality and uh, police violence against African Americans has not stopped since Reconstruction, right? Since the eight, late 1800s, it's been a steady, uh, you know, dose of violence um, that black uh, Black Americans have dealt with. It's just that now it's kind of exploded onto the scene and and it's much more visible, cameras, uh, because of cameras, uh, oh. camera phones, and, and all that. Um, so for me this this play really spoke to all of those things at the same time and all of these things which are as as the as a historical playwright as it were and as a son of a historian as as an arab american were really fascinating to me really uh, inherently dramatic stuff and politically important kind of historical in terms of it the historical kind of interest of of the topic but also the the degree to which the topics are are timely, right? We're talking about racism, whiteness, uh, and and brutality
2: no, uh, I mean, just towards just, the other. I just jump in here. This this illustrates perfectly what I started with, which is that the number of people who will read my student's book, between, uh, what's the title? Oh, it's Sarah Galtier, Between yes. Arab and White. Between Arab and White. You know, or maybe the number of people in this room, hundred, two hundred, three hundred, the number of people who can learn about these issues that Samarinda was just talking about through seeing a play that's produced is going to be many, many times that at each performance. So art and culture, and and it could be comic books, it could be sculpture, it doesn't really matter, uh, has the potential to reach so many more people. And in some ways, in a more profound way. I mean, you know, it's a great book. It's a wonderful book, Sarah's book. But the way in which a good playwright can, or a good novelist, or a good poet can, you know, crystallize these things and convey them to ordinary people is unparalleled.
0: I, want, I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive to, in part, I'm sensitive to time, first of all, but I'm also sensitive to the, uh, in some ways, our positionality here. It's, it's very easy for us, uh, in some ways, to to criticize the United States. Being so far away from it I mean, deserves full criticism. So I want to turn to a slightly different, different subject and to pick up on something, actually, Rashid, that you said earlier when you were talking about um, the reasons that the Palestinian national aspirations perhaps have been, been frustrated. So in much of your work, or in many of your works, you return to a theme. It's not necessarily a central theme, but, it, but it's there that the plight of the Palestinian people can not be only be attributed or isn't attributed solely to Israel's occupation and to the Zionist project in general or solely to the U.S. support for Israel, but also to the ways in which Arab states and in particular sometimes the GCC states have failed to fully support the Palestinian cause. And why do you think that is? Because that in some ways is more counterintuitive.
2: Yeah. The, and, and will that continue? Is that Well, I mean, the job description of a historian, I always say when asked a question like this, the job description of a historian does not include predicting the future. I don't know well,
3: fair oh, enough. whether fair oh, enough.
2: that situation will continue. But I think that it's been a distressing pattern going back to the 1940s that Arab whatever their peoples felt, and it's very clear. I mean, I've done research on the period before World War I. People in the Arab world were, were mobilized and motivated by the Palestine issue in 1911. In 1912, members of the Ottoman parliament were bringing up the issue of Zionism and making a real nuisance of themselves in Istanbul. They did this because of public opinion in Damascus and in Beirut and in places and in Cairo and all over the Arab world, in Baghdad. So I am not now saying that there has not been sympathy for the Palestinian cause uh, at any at any period. What I am saying is that since 1948, it is unfortunately been the case that many Arab governments have been more concerned about maintaining good relations with the superpowers before the end of the Cold War and with the United States since than they have been with responding to their own people's desire to see them support the Palestine cause. Now, they've supported the Palestine cause. The PLO has depended in the past uh, 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 enormously on contributions from Arab countries, on weapons from other Arab countries, on, 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 on Arab countries like Kuwait, for example, allowing the PLO to raise money among, among Kuwaitis and Palestinians. Um, so this is not to say that there has not been extensive support, diplomatic and otherwise, for the Palestinian cause over time. But when push comes to shove, and it's a question of, do we really, really need, or do we re- are we really willing to alienate the Americans over this issue, or are we gonna just pull back a little bit? I mean, I don't wanna talk about the GCC, but look at what happened with the resolution in December. Egypt was sponsoring an important Security Council resolution. Egypt was a member of the Security Council, and Egypt was the sponsor of the resolution. Egypt withdrew the resolution under American and Israeli pressure. President-elect Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu basically gave him a stereo tongue-lashing, and President Sisi withdrew that resolution. It was reintroduced by other Security Council members. It passed with the vote of Egypt and the veto of the United States. But that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess guess to what I'd like to
2: be able to get in... I could could say more. I could say more. Go Uh, ahead. Israel... (laughs) was established not just as a colonial settler project or as an attempt to give the Jewish people a center and a homeland and a focus. Before the Balfour Declaration, the British decided that they needed to control Palestine. It had nothing to do with Zionism. This was before Balfour was even a member of the government. Okay, this was a, a, a liberal, British liberal government. Balfour was miles away. And Zionism was not in their minds. I read years and years and years of Committee of Imperial Defense, War Office, Admiralty, Foreign Office documents. Zionism Jews were never mentioned. It was strategic. That part of this region was absolutely vital to British Imperial. That's why Lord Balfour, issued the Balfour Declaration. It wasn't the brown eyes of Chaim Weizmann. And those those considerations continue, you know, right up to the present day. Uh, So Israel was established for reasons that had nothing to do with Zionism, or rather the British took Palestine and established the Zionist movement there for reasons that had nothing to do with Zionism. And Israel today in the Arab world continues on its own for its own reasons to play a divisive role. If there are Sunni-Shia disagreements, that suits Israel. If there are conflicts with Iran, that suits Israel. And it, 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 we don't, can't blame Israel if people start fighting each other or if there are important issues between Iran and other Arab countries. But it, it's, it's depressing to see that the kind of role that Israel plays is not always fully recognized as a, it, was, it, was, it was established before Israel was, was there by the British to divide up this region, to have the strategic fulcrum. And it still plays that role long after British the British Empire has disappeared. And long after, in fact, this is even an American concern. This is now an Israeli concern. And they do a great job of it. Uh, if, you, if anybody's interested, look very carefully at the map of Syria and look at some of the groups that are backed up against the Golan Heights, they get all of their support from, from Israel. The, the ones that are, whose, whose backs aren't, is Israel doing in Syria? It's not the only actor in Syria, Iran is in Syria, Russia is in Syria, five other countries, major actors are in Syria, Turkey, United States, Britain, France, and so on and so forth. But what's Israel up to? We don't ask ourselves those hard questions. Where our
0: time is, is coming uh, to an end, but I want to get in one last question to to Ismail. And this has to do with your, your play Foot, the one we had a reading of which uh here last last year. And this is your your your, your monologue on the life of the um the Palestinian football player Tarek Al who was killed by the IDF in two thousand and six. And and you have in that play, I mean it's a very powerful um, play, you have in part, you have an incisively critical portrait of of an official in the Palestinian government. And I was wondering, um, you know, how you have chosen to approach this subject of the relationship of the Palestinian people with their leadership in your work, which is a complicated issue for many reasons. And if we have perhaps just a moment after you respond, I was wondering, Rashid, if you can comment, having been inside the negotiation process itself, on the way in which the Palestinian leadership may not always have negotiated in the most productive ways for the Palestinian people.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean that's a, it's a very tricky question, and and you know because one of the tropes uh, in the United States is you know the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, and 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 kind of every conversation about Palestine is is very. I think adeptly kind of um you know, tra- there's an attempt to steer it to like, well, the Palestinians did this. And so I'm I'm very hesitant to play into that, right? Um at the same time, and I feel very strongly that, you know, uh we should be the ones to air our own dirty laundry and, and, and deal with that very honestly and 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 to be very wary of kind of being steered into that conversation by by others, specifically Americans and, and Israelis. Um but I think that's something that I learned, you know, from from Rashid's work too, which is very kind of clear and, and 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 concise and articulate and 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 does not kind of hold back on on calling out the failures of Palestinian leadership historically when necessary, um, and 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 I think to do so within the context of of understanding the role that Zionism and imperialism played uh, and and the power dynamics is very is important, right? So. It, for me, that conversation always happens in the context of well, Arafat was never in a position of power, or even Abbas you know is always operating from a position of of weakness right that said uh I think it's incredibly to point, incredibly important to point out where there have been strategic and moral failings on the part of the Palestinian leadership because there is a responsibility um, uh, that, they, that they hold for the for the dire state of the Palestinian people today. I think they've failed us since the 30s, in many respects. It's also worth saying, and I always have these conversations, and in foot, actually, the character says, all the good Palestinian leaders are dead or in jail, and we're kind of left with the dregs, mostly, on, for, for a reason, right? I mean, this is a strategic decision where external factors do play a very important role. And I think it's important to, to say that. Um, but you can look back, and many of the smartest, most courageous uh, Palestinian leaders and artistic and cultural figures were assassinated, were incarcerated, were exiled, were neutralized in various ways. Um, but the living have haunted us with their their bad decisions in many ways, and and um, and I think that continues to the present day. I mean, when's the last election we've had in Palestine, right? And uh, you know. I saw Mahmoud Abbas at Shimon Perez's funeral. I mean, I find that appalling, right? I find the use of the Palestinian Authority to crack down on dissent and do the job of the occupation absolutely unacceptable and 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 tragic, right? Um, so, so I, I think that it's as I was writing foot, it came out um, just very naturally as kind of in this fictionalized account of this football player who was on the Palestinian national team and was eventually killed by Israeli soldiers. And I would also add that Palestinian football players, soccer players, are continually uh, targeted by uh, the occupation, whether it's not being allowed to get to tournaments, being tortured, exiled, imprisoned, or in some cases, murdered. Um, Anyway, so it, it just came out organically. And I think, listen, if you talk to any Palestinian on the street, uh, and they are sure no one's listening. They'll tell you basically the same thing. Um, I mean, Palestinians are not, not idiots. I mean, they're very highly educated, <laughs> highly experienced people um, who who know when they're being duped, and they know and they know when they're being when they're not being well served. And so I think that um, I hope at least that that kind of articulation of it through the character and foot is simply kind of an extension of what most Palestinians would tell you in any
2: conversation.
0: Well, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, uh, if, in part, reading through your, your account of how you experienced the negotiations in, in Madrid and then in, in Washington, if there's anything in what Ismail has said that resonates with that. I mean, it's on a very different level that we're talking
2: here. Yeah. But, well, a couple things. Um, I, I wrote a very, what I thought was as sympathetic as possible, possible account of the failures of the Palestinian leadership um, in the 30s and the 40s in the Iron Cage. And I took that up to the present. Um, and, you know, no national movement between World War I and World War II, fighting against a colonial power, achieved national liberation, except the Irish. In the entire period between World War I and World War II, not one colonized people achieved independence. So the Palestinians, having been defeated in 36, 39, were in good company. You know, a leadership of angels would not have, you know, guaranteed national liberation and defeat of the Zionist project and the British packing up and going home on ships. Um, So, any criticism of the Palestinian leadership of the 30s, which included my uncle. I mean, you know, this is not a criticism of a bunch of people over there. This right. is self-criticism, criticism of my family, my class, my, you know, the leadership that, you know, I, I, uh, in which we're all implicated as Palestinians. Um, and I, I, I was in Beirut for many, many years. I was deeply involved in politics. And I understand how unfavorable the situation was for us in that period from the 60s until 1982. I lived there most of that period, and I was involved. And I know exactly how many enemies we were facing. I mean, there were days when there were Israeli ships offshore, Syrian artillery was shelling us, and the phalangists were besieging a a refugee camp. So you had Syrian, Lebanese, and Israelis at us at the same time, Okay, us and the Lebanese National Movement. So, you know, anybody who minimizes the difficulties that the leadership in the 30s faced is being unfair. And anybody who minimizes the difficulties that the PLO leadership faced is being unfair. (laughs) That said, a lot of mistakes were made. I I don't even go through all of the mistakes I would argue were made in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. Mistakes in Jordan, mistakes in Lebanon, strategic mistakes as far as uh, armed struggle, strategic mistakes as far as diplomacy. I, I, I make those criticisms from outside, but I was in the negotiations, not Oslo, before Oslo. I had nothing to do with Oslo. I wouldn't have had anything to do with Oslo. Had any of the people who were in Washington been in Oslo, Oslo would not have been Oslo. Leave that aside. But the mistakes that were made there were fatal mistakes. Fatal mistakes. We, I hope to say, I think I can honestly say that having worked in, this, in, this, in these efforts, for three years from the fall of 1991 until the summer of 1993, two and a half years. We didn't fall into the traps that they blindly fell into with the Oslo Accords. Um, There were so many of those traps. Israel obtained recognition of the state of Israel from the PLO. The PLO obtained recognition of the PLO from Israel the right of self-determination, Palestinian statehood. No, there was no reciprocal recognition between a state of Palestine and a state of Israel, or of an Israeli right of national self-determination and of a Palestinian right of national self-determination. The basic inequality that Smael talked about between the two sides was reflected in that agreement. There was no halt to settlements. There was, I mean, I could go on and on and on, things that in in, in Washington, we, we would not concede on. They simply gave away. Um, to my way of thinking, much of the difficulty that the, the Palestinians face today are a result of strategic miscalculations. Now, it should be said that every one of the PLO's Arab allies was pushing it to make this agreement. That doesn't absolve the PLO or the Palestinian leadership of the responsibility they signed mistakenly, in my view, a bad agreement. Um, the fact that there are various external actors working day and night to keep the Palestinians disunited, to this day, does not absolve the Palestinians from the responsibility. It's their people, it's their cause. It's up to us to unite our, reunite our national movement. It's not up to this or that Arab country or this or that non-Arab country to decide. It should be up to the Palestinians. And if we fail to do that, we can't blame other people. Yes, others are interfering in our affairs. You know, It's not just Russia interfering in the affairs of American elections. Everybody interferes in other people's affairs and shouldn't, but they do. Mm-hmm. But it's up to the Palestinians to unite and, 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 and to determine their own strategy. And I, I, I think that's one of, our, one of our biggest challenges right now. Um, there's a, there's a change in the United States in public opinion at the grassroots, on university campuses, among, in the Jewish community, among young people, in, in many churches, in many trade unions. Uh, the, if you look at the polling, Democrats are about evenly divided. The base of the Democratic Party has as many partisans or supporters of the Palestinians or critics of Israel as it has supporters of Israel. This is unprecedented in American history. Now that's just a poll, that's just a result, December, January, a couple polls that could change. But we've never had anything like this. Truman, Truman spoke correctly in 1945. I have no supporters of Palestine in my constituency. Well, we do have supporters now. And that's the result of a lot of people doing a lot of work, mainly students, actually, no, no money, no organization, just a lot of students, a lot of activists, and a few organizations, and a lot of academics, And a lot of, you know, people working, nobody knows uh, some of the work that's been done. Artists. (laughs) 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 But there's an unprecedented opportunity. But for that to take advantage of that opportunity, the Palestinians have to get their act together and the Arabs have to get their act together. And that doesn't just mean a summit meeting, which is a photo opportunity. That means an actual strategy to actually do something to change the American position rather than running to see who can please Mr. Trump the most. And the American position can be changed. There actually is the potential for that. You don't see it at the political level yet. And you don't see it in the media yet. But you come to any American campus, and SJP and the supporters of Israel are toe to toe. I mean, since when did we have supporters, Jewish Voice for Peace and SJP, can stand up to Zionist organizations on 50 American campuses? Them, when did that often. happen? We have a Center for Palestine Studies at Columbia University. We get two in 300 people for some of our events. Events organized by the Institute for Israel and Jewish Studies get 30, 40, 50 people. They have unlimited funding. We have very, very little funding. But we have a cause that people are interested in hearing more about. We brought six Palestinian films to Colombia last year. We brought uh, Amir Zarbi. We brought uh, uh, Shismu. Hani Abbasid. Abbasid. I mean, we brought a couple of really good Palestinian Musi. filmmakers. Musi. We brought May Masi. Uh, just this past year. We got hundreds of people for that. That was not me giving a boring lecture. That was really good films and really brilliant filmmakers talking to an American audience. There were very few of our people in those audiences. Okay, this is not preaching to the converted. Now that's just Columbia. NYU is another scene. Each each campus you go to, it's a different scene. So there are opportunities in the United States which were we, the Palestinians, better organized and more united, and were the Arab world able to focus on this a little more and a little more seriously, uh, I think would, would enable us to see some changes. I
0: have more questions, but I, I really want to make sure we have enough time for Q&A, so I'm going to go, go to the audience. We have about 15, 20 minutes if people have questions. We have two people who are going to be walking around with phones. Um, we're going to give up one of our mics up here in spirit of solidarity. Um, so hands. Uh, yes, right here. Uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, first, all right, first of all,
2: thank you so much for being here. Hold the
3: mic to your mouth. It's not. Oh, there Um, Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Um, This is kind of a question and kind of a comment, but relating to what you just said about how um, there's a change of the American position and people should be taking advantage of that. But you've also, like at the beginning of the lecture, you mentioned how your book, um, Palestinian Identity, was only very recently translated into Arabic. Um, and, and trying, and you said in that book you were trying to deconstruct certain myths that I do think bl- like live within the Arab Palestinians in, in uh, the Middle East of like the whole Palestinian identity notion is very held on like is hold, held on onto, but not many people acknowledge that it's something that is a present and like happened post 1948. And I, what is like how do you think we could change that when works like yours and art like yours are made in English and are made for a Palestinian-American audience, not a Palestinian-Arab audience, which is a really big audience?
2: Um, I'll, I'll give you a quick answer. I mean, part of this is the coincidence of my having been born in the United States. And part of this is the coincidence. I was born in the United States because my parents, my father was a graduate student in <coughs> when the Nakba happened and he couldn't go back to Palestine. Um, and I was born in, in New York. Um, and part of it is the fact that w- I was very fortunate to uh, uh, get an academic posting in the United States. And part of it is the fact that when I left Beirut in 1983, I was planning to come back to Beirut and teach for the rest of my career at AUB, but you know, I, we couldn't go back. The War started again. I had three children, including him. who was, He was like months old at the time. And I, I, having lived in Beirut for eight or nine years of war without children was easy, but living in Beirut in the Civil War with three children was just unthinkable. So for all of those reasons, I'm in the United States. Um, and it, another thing that I should say is that there is resistance to some of the ideas that I put forward in that book and other ideas I put forward. I tried to publish in a journal, uh, a, a key chapter from, um, uh, what's it, what's name? no, the other one. Um, I know, there's so many of them. Right? Not brokers. Uh, struggle. For, uh, no. Iron Cage. Iron Cage. Thank you. If I didn't have these guys up here, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, I tried to publish publish a chapter uh, of, of The Iron Cage, which talked about the failures of Palestinian leadership. And the editor gave me the, the mo- so much trouble that I just pulled the chapter. Now, that book is now available in Arabic. Al al Hadid, I think is the title. Uh, you can buy it in Amman, you can buy it in Beirut. So I have, I mean, a lot of this stuff, it's, it's, it, it's hard to publish, but it's, it's being published. But part of our problem is it's so hard to get books and ideas to move around the Arab world. Okay, you were complaining about there are no Moroccan books at the fair here. Well, that's, there are a few, but you know, we really should have a, 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 a much freer circulation of ideas within the Arab world. Uh, and that's that's something that really people should be working on. It's important. It's important. Art should circulate more freely. Cultural production should circulate more freely. But especially books should circulate more freely.
1: Yeah, and I, I'll also say that uh, it's not only, you know, Palestinian Americans who are doing a lot of this work. I mean, there's also tons of Palestinians in Palestine and in the diaspora writing in Arabic uh, who are doing, you know, really interesting uh, stuff. I mean, there's also it must be said a lot of really, really talented Palestinian citizens of Israel who are doing some of the most groundbreaking work in cinema and theater who cannot really travel to the Arab world. You know, so I mean, those are problems I think also that we need to solve within the Arab world. But the work is being done, and the work is out there, and I think it's it's it, it, really it's about changing some of those that that mentality amongst ourselves. Um, But also, if you want to find the work, it's there. I think it's a matter of kind of seeing what you
2: want to see. Mm -hmm. Just let me add one thing. Ever since the 50s, the most important Palestinian artistic production, literary, cultural, uh, theater, but especially films, has come out of Palestinians living under Israeli occupation, mainly inside Israel. I mean, and many of them then ended up being exiles. Um, it's true of some, a lot of intellectual production too. But the best films are being made by Palestinians who grew up in Israel. Some of them are now outside and they don't go back. But uh, it's quite extraordinary. This is a cut-off part of the Palestinian community that was never given its full due. But in terms of literary and cultural production, from Mahmoud Darwish to and you just go the. Amir Habibi on and on and on and on all of the names and that's now increasingly true in film it's just remarkable we brought a bunch of these people to to, you know May Masri she grew up in Beirut so there are others from the diaspora and from uh, the areas occupied in 67 but it's extraordinary the preponderance of 48 Palestinians uh, in artistic and cultural production